Social and ecological transformation requires design and architecture fields to develop new, more expansive ways of thinking and acting that better engage questions of ecology. The DFG HRC funded research project, enacting Gregory Bateson's ecological aesthetics, examines how the work of anthropologist and cybernetician Gregory Bateson might contribute an alternative frame of action to navigate this challenge. These are recordings of a series of conversations held during the two year running period of the project. In this conversation, I talk with Dr. Anthony Cheney. We look at Gregory Bateson's role within the broader 1960s conversations on ecological change by revisiting what Cheney identifies as the law 1960s, particularly the sites where explorations on finding better ways to engage questions of systems change at social, environmental, and political levels were underway. Without much ado, um... Anthony, we would let's. I would let, just like to start off, perhaps, with this question of: so, how did you arrive at this project, and you know, how did you start writing this book, perhaps, just so that everyone can. First of all, thank you very much for inviting me. Um, <clears throat> as Darmini said, um, I'm, I'm trained in intellectual history, so this book is coming from an uh, uh, intellectual history context. Um, I think of history as uh, more humanities and interpretive art rather than social sciences. Um, <clears throat> and my specialties are all American context. So, you know, that's, that's where I'm coming from. That's where my expertise is. Um, I got into Gregory Bates in, in, the, in the 1980s and uh, it came through a um, introduction to him in the work of Christopher Lash, an American intellectual historian, who was sort of criticizing him. And um, so I picked up a few Bates in the books and got into it that way. I'm attracted to the idea, I like to think, because it, uh, this, this concept of the double bind, I felt like, uh, I, I felt that it resonated with a lot of other ideas that were present in the period, um, ideas that I call impossible dilemmas, and this concept of runaway. Um, I was thinking this morning that it is Halloween, and um, it's a very big thing here in the United States. And I was remembering the kind of um, nightmare scenario that's presented in the old Disney cartoon of uh, the Sorcerer's Apprentice. I don't know if anybody's ever seen that, but that's where the, the assistant to the sorcerer makes a mistake and um, these brooms carrying water buckets are uh, keep doubling in number and increasing in an exponential way. And uh, that sort of frightening, out of control idea is, is uh, kind of the concept of runaway in my mind. 
So those are the those are the basic concepts that brought me to the study in Bateson. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I think one thing that's really interesting about the book is now you mentioned this kind of double bind and um, the idea of what you called um, a, a series of like impossible um, kind of, you know, dilemma kind of constructs, right? And in your book, you kind of give us quite an, a vivid image, imaginary of this because you trace it across, I would say, also in like in other philosophical, cultural, literary arts, this kind of context. And I find that fascinating. So for an example, you have this kind of double bind and then you speak also of Catch-22, right? And then you also kind of go into a little bit into the kind of existentialist philosophy um, at the moment. So can you just kind of explain that and, you know, kind of like the different uh, imaginaries that kind of come together? Because I think one thing about the double bind is perhaps also for the audience, it might be nice if we kind of define it the way perhaps that you get that in Bateson's literature, but then also how you make these connections. I felt like the double bind was a um, idea resonant with, a, with similar ideas same time or prior to it that I call in the book Impossible Dilemmas. Um, the most contemporary one with double bind is the Catch-22. I don't know these days how, how much people are um, uh, familiar with Joseph Heller's novel uh, Catch-22, but um, I'm not sure people read it too much anymore, and I'm not sure how non how how much non-American audiences read it. But Catch Twenty Two and Double Bind are almost synonymous. If you go to some dictionaries, uh, you'll see a Catch Twenty Two defined as a double bind, and a double bind defined as a Catch Twenty Two. And these are logical paradoxes. Um, that are somehow trapping. Um, Bateson uh, found his in, in the clinic, in the psychiatric clinic. That's where he, he found the evidence of double bind communication. But the other ideas of Catch-22 and Joseph Heller, um, the concept of the absurd in existential philosophy, uh, uh, Reinhold Niebuhr's idea, his his sort of redefinition of original sin in, in um, his book that came out just prior to World War II. Um, and I think they resonate with the end of the war and the, the uh, post-war period with the knowledge of the bomb, uh, the atomic bomb, being a kind of um, defeat in victory. Uh, yeah, you have won the war, but you have done it through the invention of a world-ending new weapon. And that is a kind of a uh, impossible situation that post-war Americans find themselves in.
Yeah, exactly. And then you kind of go on to discuss um, the kind of existentialist camp, right? And some a quote in your book that really struck me, and this comes, I think, from you um, reinterpreting Camus, the absurd was the contradiction between the human capacity to conceive the world as unified and the simultaneous collapse of that capacity. So, and then you kind of describe that through Niebuhr, and then you also go into, for an example, Kurt Vonnegut, and you know what they do in the kind of literary genre. And so, if you could just kind of explain that a bit, perhaps. See, well, close, yeah, close readings of, of this literature, um, you find over and over at different levels a kind of repeat of a, an impossible, impossible dilemma situation, usually of a, a paradoxical kind. Um, if you all, I know you're all uh, familiar with Bateson, so you're probably familiar with the definition of what a double bind is. Uh, and the fact that he took it from uh, his understanding of Bertrand Russell's um, theory of logical types, uh, a message that's in contradiction with its context. Um, and then B, and, and he begins to, to uh, study uh, people who have been diagnosed with schizophrenia. And he's you know, studying with a group under a grant and their grant is beginning to run out and they, they feel like they haven't made enough progress and they're trying to get more funding. And, you know, he introduces this, he deduces this idea of the double bind as an explanation for um, symptoms of people who've been identified as having schizophrenia. People who are, uh, whose symptomology is obscuring the metadata of messages because recognizing the metadata of messages in their experience um, results in punishment of some kind or pain of some kind. And so because they've been in this communicational field uh, of which double bind contradictions are thematic, they've they're they're responding with symptomology that's either completely uh, collapsed into catatonia, or is a kind of word salad hebephrenia acting out uh, that is meant to obscure the metadata that signals what a message means and how it should be interpreted. Um, these were disorders of communication. This was, the, this was the, the topic that Bateson was trying to learn about and, and refine theory about communication through studying disorders of communication. Um, 
Yeah, and I mean, in parts of your book, then you also kind of, so for an example, in chapter, in the chapter on faith and fight, right? So you also get into, I mean, you describe a little bit about the clinical work that the Paolo Alto group was doing. And one point that you also bring out is this kind of how this whole double bind was related to the question of power. And that this example where you talk about, like in most cases, this was almost also kind of connected with a certain patriarchal uh, model of looking at the family and the kind of chauvinistic, you know, um, background behind that. Can you kind of, you know, unpack that a bit? Because I find sure. that interesting. Yeah, um, this is mid to late 1950s. And, um, you know, what had been feminism in the earlier part of the century had gone underground. Uh, and um, sexism was prevalent throughout the culture um, for, for particular social problems. There was a tendency to blame mothers. Um, there were books about that. Uh, and because the double bind theme in communication took place within families and in relationships between children and parents. Then it became very easily easy for those who were trying to apply double bind theory in their own practice to uh, partake of this cultural sexism and blame mothers for their children's problems or blame mothers for um, for taking the power from men so that they couldn't play their proper role in the family. And this was the, the problem. If we can sort of cure these mothers, uh, then that would be a way to get at it. Um, this was one of the bad consequences, I think, that of double-bind theory that uh, Bateson really came to regret the way it was being applied in the clinic. On the issue of power, I think now we're getting into the conflict between um, how to apply this theory. There is an urgency for application because there are so many people who are suffering from mental illness. Um, Bateson was very wary of any kind of application uh, because of his past experience and I think because of his basic approach as a life scientist that he inherited from his father. Um, but people who are dealing with, with patients need to have some kind of application. Uh, and so some of the people on his team began to resist theory, theorizing, and uh, moved more towards how can we apply it. Uh, too much theorizing has become a way for some of our patients to distract from the, from the real work they need to do. Uh, and so we have this, this divide between is the solution 
in how we think about the problem or is it or is the solution and in the actions we take to intervene on the situation and i think that that uh division between strategy let's say is another thing that's going to be resonating as we move into the uh political and social conflicts of the 1960s exactly and i think you kind of i mean another thread that goes through your book is um you know how bates and then started to really think about the question of change right and you know in his encounters with with other people and I think one of these encounters, which is also probably because for this audience, some of them might be aware of it, some of them not. Um, I mean, something you also map is kind of his relationship to cybernetics, perhaps, right? And um, this also connects, like how you talk about, for example, runaway. And so in your book, you have the sentence, runaway became an important conceptual tool for Bateson. And then you kind of talk about runaway, I mean, at the on the one level, we could see that he has already observed this in schizogenesis in you know, his anthropological work. Then he was seeing this in his um, psychological work, as you just kind of correctly described. And then there was another context where we were, people were talking about runaways. And I think this was the kind of cybernetic context. So you do make a connection. And there's an interesting discussion also about how at that point in time, he was looking at game theory and you know, making that connection. Um, can you kind of elaborate on that a bit, perhaps? Also as a way of, you know, talking about cybernetics. In conversations between um, John von Neumann, the Macy conferences on cybernetics, um, and um, uh, Norbert, is it Norbert Wiener? Yeah ranking on his first net. And the early digital computers that were being built at the time. And you know, the, the concept of runaway comes from the, the situation where uh, in a, one of these early computers programming, if it met a contradiction, then the, the computer would go into a kind of accelerating circular maneuver procedure and would uh, break down in time. And they called that runaway. And that's the concept that, uh, that Bateson took to apply outside of you know, strict cybernetics and to a, a more social scene. Um, it's a, it's a self-reinforcing closed circle, I think you might say that that accelerates and is closed to negative feedback that would check any of that, any of the processes within it. Um, now we can apply it to, uh, you know, big concepts like climate emergency, crossing thresholds, flipping triggers that, that uh, cause further acceleration in global warming and so on. And <clears throat> so in terms of like the whole kind of, um, I mean, you have this kind of section where you talk about the riddle of the 
Quink, right? Um, that's also interesting. And this is was the kind of break-in point with Jay Haley, which is the Palo Alto kind of group. Um, could, could you explain that, what you mean by the riddle of the Sphinx and, you know, that the breakup of, you know, why he was then kind of trying to move into a different direction, perhaps Bates and at that point in time. <clears throat> well, uh, the riddle of the Sphinx, uh, Bateson really loved to bring classical myth into you know everything that he talked about. I think it was because of his education, had a very classical education. Uh, and he he really loved to bring in all kinds of myth from the history of Western civilization. Riddle of the Sphinx was one of them. Uh, it's from the story of, of Oedipus, as you probably know. Um, the Riddle of the Sphinx was what Oedipus, Oedipus solved that riddle in order to be made king or was made king as a result. I, I see the riddle of the Sphinx as um, the way Bateson wanted to uh, illustrate how inquiry into nature, into the life sciences, was always inquiry into understanding of uh, the inquirer. Um, he's ha he had a, another saying, uh, any inquiry into nature will mean that the inquirer will suffer from stabs on the back end of the probe. You'll learn about yourself as you as you learn about the outside. Learning is self-reflective and self-reinforcing. Mm -hmm. And so I use that that riddle of the Sphinx as a return to that idea throughout the book with those questions. Uh, who, who are you to me? Who am I to you? To try to emphasize this idea that what Bateson was really trying to push was a reorientation of the way we account for reality. He wanted to frame it in what he thought of as this new science of interrelationship. So who, am, who are you to me? Who am I to, to you? Is all about relations and putting the emphasis on relationship and the importance of that in a systems theory approach to understanding how reality works. Yes, I mean, you mentioned systems theoretical approach. And also, I think in your book, there is that kind of connection you make what what this new kind of science for Bateson is kind of, you know, the directionality of it. And you also draw a little bit on some of the relationships to his um, father's work, perhaps. Um, could you kind of perhaps because there might be some people here who just are not aware of that history. So if you could just very briefly tell us a little bit about that. The, the new science for Bates and, and, you know, how it has a connection perhaps to some of his earlier work. 
when Bateson became involved in what became the Macy conferences on cybernetics, um, it really marked a change in, in his direction because what he learned in uh, these different bodies of ideas that were converging from communication theory, uh, uh, information theory, um, his work on constructing computers, what we would call today uh, artificial intelligence probably, um, he felt like this, these ideas were giving him the tools that, as it were, he could continue his father's inquiry. His father was a theoretical biologist, I think you have to say, and I pretty much think that that's kind of how Bateson saw himself throughout his career. He's always working on theory at a natural sciences sort of level. Um, uh, Bateson's father uh, was the man who coined the term um, gene. Uh, he was the one who rediscovered uh, the work of Men uh, Mendel in, in genetics and introduced it to British science and uh, solved problems that had been um, uh, ongoing in evolutionary theory. Uh, he becomes a very strong um, proponent of uh, neo-Darwinism. Um, but then has a kind of a turn against it. And, you know, he's kind of brought into the uh, neo-Darwinistic fold. Uh, he's welcomed in. He's got a lot of power. He's got a lot of influence. And um, then he's kind of pushed out again when the uh, when it comes to um, not genes, but uh, something having to do with DNA anyway. Bateson's father ends up at a kind of disappointing place in his career. And um, Bateson feels like he's got to rescue that approach in some way. Uh, and so Bateson very much sees his work as an extension of what his father had done. And it's, I think it's really part of this science of interrelationship, um, this idea that uh, we want to understand um, the workings of reality, not as uh, linear causality, but as recursive information-based uh, change, to put it in a very simple way. Yes. I mean, I think you've mentioned that. And there's also, I mean, you um, interestingly, there is also a section on Lewis Mumford, which I thought is also interesting um, uh, in terms of the kind of organic or organicism, right? Um, the kind of having to look at things in kind of totality um, or a kind of, you know, the total or the holism that was present at that moment, I think, which of which Bateson was also part of. 
And I mean, as as I said, like we can go to the kind of other thread, which is which kind of moves across this book, and that is the kind of sixties cultural context and the discussion on change, right? And one event that you actually use um, to ground that in kind of constructing the argument in the book is the dialectics of liberation in Congress. And again, I think perhaps for some of the listeners who might not know what that was, and you know, it was like an event in itself, and perhaps it was also kind of formulated in, in the beginning in a certain way, but it kind of changed, right? Uh, the nature of the event changed. So perhaps it would be interesting to tell us, you know, what that was and how did Bateson get kind of involved in, in that whole thing? The Congress on the Dialectics of Liberation. Uh, it's, it's the summer of 1967, takes place in London. Um, it's the brainchild of a group that called itself the Institute of Phenomenology. That was the writer and psychiatrist, R.D. Lang, and his colleagues, Joe Burke, David Cooper. Um, Lang had written a very well-received book in the burgeoning counterculture called The Divided Mind. Uh, he was also a clinical psychiatrist um, who specialized in patients who had been diagnosed with schizophrenia. Uh, he had visited Bateson and the Bateson Double Bind Group in uh, Palo Alto in the early 60s. Um, He'd been very influenced by the double bind idea. Um, he had come to believe, I'm talking about R.D. Lang, that schizophrenics were misdiagnosed, that they weren't mentally ill, really, that they were in some sense uh, healthier than the same. Um, because they were reacting to the world that powers had created by through the monopoly of language and institutions. They were reacting in protest to that. Everyone is on some kind of mental health, mental illness continuum in reaction to the uh, world of that power has created for us and entraps us in. And um, we would do well to look at what the insane, how the insane were responding to it and to interpret their uh, symptomology to help us to uh, somehow break out of the system that we're trapped in. Um, his book that came out right, you know, maybe the, the year prior, right during the psychedelic turn that's going on in, in England in 66-67, proposes that people with schizophrenia should not be treated in the way that uh, institutional psychiatry has treated them. Thorazine, um, shock treatment, 
Rather, they should be permitted to follow their insanity, if you will, assisted and guided by a psychiatrist. Because it may be that they're on a journey to the interior, to a place that's free of the um, systemic prison that we're all in. Well, if they survive that journey, like the journeys of heroes and myth, they might come back from it with an insight that will help the rest of us. Some of Lang's colleagues called this anti-psychiatry, and they thought of themselves as anti-psychiatrists. And so there in London, they, they opened what we might call an anti-asylum, anti a place where people with mental illness could check themselves in. They wouldn't be administered drugs. They wouldn't be you know, placed in baths or receive shock treatment. They would be free to go on their journeys. They called it Kingsley Hall. And this was another thing that uh, Lang would sort of hold forth there and have these big dinners. And he was a very charismatic person. Uh, denizens of swinging London would drop by. And this is all adding to his renown during the period. He becomes a, a, a kind of a, a figure. And on the basis of that, they're able to hold this conference and uh, invite people to it. And what Lang wanted to do was he wanted to invite all of the people who had influenced him and his ideas. I think his agenda was to, to promote uh, his way of looking at things. Um, he wanted to invite um, Sartre, uh, Werner Heisenberg, uh, Foucault, Herbert Marcuse had a, a huge, very big name wish list. Um, about half of them came and the vacancies were filled with people I think we would associate both from the United States and, and from Europe and uh, England as uh, much more uh, leftist radicals. Primarily the person who came from the United States was Stokely Carmichael, who was just emerging, very charismatic person and just emerging from the past year, having introduced this concept of black power and being set off in the press as uh, the foil to Martin Luther King and this difference on strategy that I referred to um, earlier. You've got King who's got this strategy of direct nonviolence, trying to, in some sense, appeal to the white conscience on behalf of change. And then you've got uh, Stokely Carmichael and this concept of black power, uh, not interested in integration, uh, uh, we want black people to lead their own, to define themselves and lead their own movements. Um, uh, a kind of black separatism, uh, notes of black nationalism, and a rejection of um, nonviolent direct action. Um, 
and acceptance of a, a new sort of militancy if necessary. And this is a, a fragment in the civil rights movement that's kind of the, back, the vanguard of what's going on in other liberatory movements, including the anti-Vietnam movement that's really coming together at that time. And so this debate between strategies, which I'm, I, I call in the book culturalist versus structuralist, very oversimplified, but even at the time, um, the debate was put in very similar terms. Um, you know, the hippies uh, and, and the radicals or the spiritual generation and the politicos. Um, this was where the argument was. And that argument kind of uh, takes over the, this Congress that met over two weeks or so in London in this big sort of semi-abandoned train garage called the, the Roundhouse. Um, and everyone who speaks in some sense has to address that, that debate. Bateson has been invited because of that connection I talked about with R.D. Lang, and he, he winds up being the first uh, to speak. Um, and uh, the speech he gives, when he publishes it later, he calls it um, purposive action versus nature. been talking a long time, so maybe I'll pause here and uh, I can fill in any gaps or I need to or no, I go think, in a different So I think that's the, the piece, the publication, or also I think in his presentation, this is where he talks about um, conscious purpose, right, in a way. So there's that kind of first statement and the quote of, you know, this, uh, the, the small arcs of this kind of broader um, circuit of things. And if you could kind of explain that to us, perhaps for the listeners. Yeah, I think he stakes out in this debate a, a, a culturalist position, yeah. but with with some important distinctions. He starts by out by talking about you know here we are we have to choose a side, and it's the same old um, conflict uh, between he calls it the Romans and the Palestinians. Uh, he means the uh, imperialist and colonized people. Um, it's that same old conflict between them, and we're we're being called upon to choose a side. Now, most of the people there at that conference are going to choose the side of the, the exploited, colonized people. Um, the underdogs is what Bateson calls them. But then he says the problem is that. You know, if the underdogs gain power, they become the imperialists and impose power on others, and the cycle continues. And so what we need to do is, rather than choose a side in that and, and uh, continue to reinforce this ongoing cycle of assertion and counter-assertion, we need to concentrate on the bigger problem, which for him is the way this 
relationship has been framed. Uh, and again, he wants to introduce in terms that his audience will understand this new science of interrelationship. Okay, so conscious purpose. It's here where the double bind theory, I think, is extended into ways that help us to understand how it, how it applies to social relationships and relationships with the environment. Uh, he says that uh, you know, human beings are built through evolution to um, be conscious of what's important to them at that moment, which blinds them to the full circuitry of the total mind. He wants to introduce to his audience, he wants to push back in his audience against a kind of Western dualism and encourage him to think of mind as imminent in nature at large and not sort of just inside skulls of human beings. Uh, so an individual's conscious mind is restricted to what they want at that moment and what's important to that at that moment and they take an action uh, determined by what their purpose is consciously at that moment. And in doing that, they're blinded to the total circuitry, circuitry the total mind, he calls it. Um, and that introduces an error into the system, into the whole system. He says, rightly so, human beings have been doing this forever. This is the way they are. Um, and the system is resilient and is built to absorb those er uh, errors. And human culture has developed a number of, I guess you'd say cultural technologies to deal with the fact of these errors that are constantly introduced into the system by purposive action. But Western thinking and Western technological problems progress has upscaled these errors so that they're introducing now disturbances into the wider system that uh, the wider system has more trouble dealing with. And um, the change that it must go through to deal with these upscaled errors is causing um, parts of the system to deteriorate fall apart along what he calls exponential curves, runaway curves, trying to find a new equilibrium uh, or maybe fall, falling apart. Yeah. And so he's connecting this idea of, uh, he's extending to me this idea of a double bind. Now we might put it this way. It's not uh, a patient and his parent, let's say his mother, 
who have this disorderly communication. It's it's Western humanity, Western thinking, and the environment, Mother Nature. Mother Nature has built human beings to be blind to the total system and to be somehow inevitably to introduce error into the system. And yet they're, they're going to be punished for that by nature unless they change, which is painful because Western Europeans de define themselves as the epitome of technological adaptation to solve problems. Uh, and to change that, that Bateson calls it the philosophy of control or the instrumental philosophy. To change that philosophy is going to be, is going to be painful to the way Westerners identify themselves. And I think, I mean, so we will probably open up for questions, but one more thing I wanted to, which I also found nice in your kind of the way you describe the event is also the kind of reaction, right? So the kind of tone of Bateson's presentation or the kind of register of it, well, it was um, positively received by some, right? And it inspired certain things. So Allen Ginsberg would be, you know, one kind of example. Uh, but then there were like also you see in the kind of post uh, presentation debate or questions and I think that's interesting in your discussion and perhaps if you can say this how we really see the kind of culturalist structuralist debate play out and you know the locus of change right the inner versus the outer and the kind of activist versus the kind of more spiritual <laughs> the how that the debate, that I, the debate that I was talking about comes into play immediately after a speech yeah. Uh, somebody stands up and says, you know, this is the most unwise of discussions. You are too um, involved in theory. And that's because you're in a, an elite position and can afford to theorize. But there are some people today, you know, in the cities of, a, of the United States and in these um, colonial battles in Vietnam and elsewhere, you know, they're fighting for their lives and they don't have the luxury of sitting back and theorizing. That's a, you know, that's a real, you know, we need to be uh, revolutionaries at this point. We need to be militant fighters. We can't spend our time theorizing. That's always been a distraction or a way that elite people can avoid taking the side they need to take in these battles. And then the next person gets up and says, I understand what you're saying about the wider system. And uh, I, I, I agree with it. Um, but in this time, we just don't have the luxury to, um, to deal with that. We need to deal with these problems that are right in front of us. Poverty, urban unrest, uh, the war in Vietnam. Um, we've got to be dealing with those 
if we can deal with these other bigger problems that you're talking about at the same time, fine. But if we can't, we've got to concentrate on these problems in front of us. We don't have the luxury. And Basin says, well, you're right. The only thing I would disagree with you there is the word luxury. Because the bigger problems are pressing too. And that's where he talks about what we call today global warming. He talks about the greenhouse effect. Um, which, you know, is one of the, if not the first, one of the earliest mentions of the greenhouse effect to a kind of a general public audience. Yeah, so. Ginsburg is very, um, you know, taken by that. He, he has a, he goes through um, a lot of despair over, over the idea of the greenhouse effect. He has an, an apocalyptic encounter. Some people have called that. Yes, and I mean, some of it's poetry after that. Um, perhaps like, you know, the veiled visitation and all that, you would see that um, was kind of inspired by Bateson. Brings in a double bind idea, yes. brings in the idea of apocalypse. Um, so I think now we can, we will just open the discussion to the audience. Um, and then so we can kind of, uh, anyone here who, has a question, which is either, you know, which something that um, arose from the discussion or something that you had already, perhaps, um, I think this is the time. So everyone gets a... Yeah, maybe I can ask a question. <laughs> uh, listening to the conversation, I was just wondering, um, or no, I was not wondering, it, it sounds, as if, I think that goes back to the interest that Ben was mentioning and Ben Dumini in the beginning, uh, it, the, the relation of Bateson thinking to design. Um, I would say when, when, when we look around or just look um, at the Twitter feed, for example, um, it seems to be very relevant in a way, that way of thinking or for us to learn let's say for me to learn that type of thinking or the way of thinking to to see beyond kind of what is in front of our eyes uh, i'm specifically thinking about this thinking action divide or maybe it's not a divide maybe it's just two different concepts um um, and uh, I think the, the question would be that that's more a comment, okay. But the question that comes is could you say regarding the greenhouse effect? Um, and in, in which way did it inspire? Was it Allen Ginsberg um, that you mentioned? In which way did it inspire him, or what was kind of the, the effect on that? On, on, yeah, on, on that effect on Ginsberg, on how he did he? translate that into something or that's maybe a question yeah <laughs> when Ginsburg was asked oh I don't know 15 20 years later about the 1960s what was the most significant thing about that period when Allen Ginsburg was asked that um, he talks about Gregory Bateson 
and he talks about um, the change in thinking that I would call today the ecological imagination, ecological consciousness. Mm -hmm. The idea that, um, you know, he puts it this way. Uh, we've been used to the idea of, because of human aggression, we can, we've developed a weapon that could destroy our societies, our civilization in a moment. But we hadn't been as familiar with the idea that we might slowly poison, destroy it by slowly poisoning the atmosphere. Uh, which is the climate emergency today, atmosphere poisoned, if you will, by carbon particles, et cetera on the burning fossil fuels. So this is a big moment for, for um, Ginsburg, where he's facing that possibility of apocalypse as the result of what have been a kind of confidence in human capacities to innovate themselves out of all their challenges. Hmm. But these innovations now have become the thing that slowly poisoning, poisoning the atmosphere. When we look at the climate emergency today, most of the solutions that are given serious attention seems to me, are solutions of what I'd call ecological modernism, um, carbon capture, um, somehow a decoupling of, of economic growth and material throughput technological interventions into the atmosphere, the same sort of things you would expect by a people who identify themselves as the epitome of technological adapters to problems. They haven't changed their identity. They're bringing that same approach to the problem. And more, you know, the, the amount of carbon particles in the atmosphere keeps on increasing, and the globe keeps warming at an accelerating speed. That's the way institutions work. Uh, I, they don't seem to have changed that much, but I do think that the ecological imagination is relevant in human thinking, but it doesn't have a lot of institutional power. I don't know if that responds to your question, but that's what came to mind. Uh, I guess that's more that I would have expected. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs>
but I think yeah. perhaps that question also triggers, I mean, I was thinking like in that chapter towards the end, you also discuss, I mean, Ginsburg also at one level talks about like, you know, how is it that we can change the ways in which kind of we sense into this kind of situation, right? Um, even the kind of poetry that he does, that kind of work. And you also describe a little bit about Bates and um in getting interested in you know a certain form of totemism for an example so that's all there uh, perhaps this might be a place where you can just kind of say tell us a little bit about this kind of things that Bateson thought would enable us perhaps to kind of you know tap into that wider circuit and kind of you know not only that small arc that we kind of concentrated on perhaps. that this concept conscious purpose was kind of you know leading us to My internet is breaking up a little. Can you still hear me? Yeah. I, I didn't catch all of that, but I think I know what you're going for yeah. here. And you know, the, the answers are the, the, the suggestions by people who are Batesonian, uh, both then and now, I think, including Ginsburg, is to engage with these areas of human culture that have developed to counteract the error that's introduced by conscious purpose. And that would be, this is what Bateson listed off, art, mm -hmm. uh, the kind of non-applicating inquiry that he did, you know, the, the kind of science that's not all about how what's this going to be good for to help us to grow economically or whatever. Um, what he said was the best of religion, uh, ritual, meditation, the same things that Ginsburg talked about, same things a lot of people are talking about today, same sorts of things that come out of indigenous environmental thought. Yeah, do we have any more questions? Or even comments, perhaps? I have a question. Yes, ma'am. Um, I, uh, my, my reason for being here is because I'm, um, I've been working with Nora Bateson on the warm data. Um, and I was curious to see if maybe you um, uh, uh, could resonate with a connection I was trying to make between the rise between the wars of the free clinics, the polyclinic, the Berlin um, ambulatorium, this whole notion that Freud and psycho other psychoanalysts had at the time that people getting um, <clears throat> access to um, really double binds being able to 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 talk through them rather than have shock therapy and um medication and and that that was a huge experiment and even in london you know they opened london there was like a two-year waiting list i mean it was quite extraordinary and um and the whole idea that um this thinking this way of thinking that needed to be restructured 
which he considered basically absolutely um, urgent. And without that, we would destroy because an organism that destroys its environment destroys itself. Um, how today, and, and one thing, I haven't read your book, I am going to and I'm looking forward to it, is um, how much Deleuze and Gattari got from Beethoven in their core concepts. And they acknowledge him very poorly just because of seeing him as a, you know, I think they call him like typical American thinker who works with, you know, the military because of a brief uh, involvement that Grayson had. But the rhizome, the uh, schizoanalysis, I mean, all, so much of that is, is Batonian. And I don't know, because that ended up having a massive cultural impact in this sort of onto-epistemological, uh, cultural, um, you know, continental, but it's still very much alive and still that connection's not made. I don't know if you explore that in your book. And, but I think in terms of Domini and I'm not sure who else is in the project, this Deleuze-Bateson connection is a very important one because it's influenced so much of design and architecture. Um, so I don't know if you're gonna get something from this, but please, <laughs> thank you. Thank you for that question. I think that's a very important one. I think, um, Anthony, you can go. <laughs> Well, I think the whole um, idea of family therapy uh, is probably the biggest um, contribution to therapy that's coming out of the double bind uh, group. Um, not exclusively, I wouldn't think, but you know, they're 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 bringing the disease from something in understood inside the body of one individual to the communication of uh, people who live closely together and who are biologically related often. And so therapy to, to be directed to that group through communication and exploring how they're communicating with each other, basis of family therapy. Um, I think that's, that's their biggest influence in psychiatric terms. Well, I would also say that, I mean, The Runaway, because that's the title of your book, um, is is also the fact that this Western cosmovision that starts top down, I mean, that you're created in the image of a god, um, um, rather than there being a fundamental unity that you don't tend towards, it's where you come from. And that's a complete flip of this notion of the latter and uh, how the notion of individualism is literally tailored to keep up with, if we're gonna take his speech at, at um, in London, to the, to the imperial modality. 
Now, going for the underdog, even though in that speech, he does give Marx a lot of credit, which is interesting <laughs> you know, in that environment that he says, yes, he was the first to really look at the systemic, uh, not the individual. And I think it's, it's fascinating that, um, you know, we're still, I think, not taking another look at what basically a social anthropologist was observing once people were all brought to serve the machine. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think that that's part of a lot of the questions we're faced with now in a way that's gone further into narrow hacking, but that was already happening as well with um, um, Goebbels and his work on Goebbels and, and propaganda, you know, and, and communication and media. And uh, I don't know, I, I just think that um, from a, a design standpoint, because in other years I was an architect, so for me it's fascinating to go into Bateson and realize just how little of those um, uh, concerns or inquiry or epistemologies were involved in my training. I mean, you know, I, I feel like I'm full of malware, you know, if you're going to take, you know. <laughs> and yet, um, I think that the the, the big question about, is it a luxury, you know, that he addresses, and it's the first time I think that that kind of thinking is presented, you know, in terms of this ecological mind, um, which can become abstract because now everybody's talking about ecology and whatever, but what we're really saying is that we're built up by this, you know, incredible, constellation of organisms. I mean, there is no captain of my soul. I mean, that's the whole addiction to control. <laughs> and, and just like any other addiction, um, the path um, away is, is not abstinence. It's not saying there is no control. It's connection. And this is why I've gotten so involved in the warm data work. And I think for you, the researchers, I highly recommend that you take a close look at that because I think in relationship to designing ecologies, that's like a substrate, a dynamic substrate that changes the soil on which anything else can be thought from, uh, literally. I mean, um, and to the point that I think it's a, uh, a non-topistemological, um, how shall I say? I mean, it's 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 akin to, you know, the the, the Copernican uh, revolution. I mean, the individual is not the center of the mind. You know, it's that's as radical is saying, you know, that the earth was not the center of the universe. Um, and I think this work is just so urgent because it's intimate. It's extremely intimate, you know? And I wonder in your experience of writing the book, 
how did you feel that in yourself, in your thinking, in your cultural explorations? How studying Bateson's trajectory, how did that affect you? An interesting question. <laughs> I'm not sure I could answer that in a simple way. Um, I've expressed it this way before. Um, you know, I, I talked about that sort of nightmare of the sorcerer's apprentice. Uh, seeing that as a child, I feel like you know, it was very, very frightening to me. And um, that might be some kind of a connection. Uh, I've expressed it this way before. The double bind seems to be the, the place where the expression of um, the, most, the most difficult thing that we, we have to face and we have to deal with. The double bind somehow expresses that. And so when you're, when I was researching and, and writing the book, that difficult idea, almost like a wall that I would kept trying to find ways into, was in front of me all the time. Um, and that was my experience. You know, that's why I, that's why I took that as a topic. Um, and that was my experience doing that. Another thing I want to add, just from all of those interesting things you were saying, was the fact that, uh, you know, I'm, I wasn't trained as a scientist. I never liked science. Uh, I, you know, I took very as few science classes I, as I could possibly take. Uh, but because Gregory Bateson was operating at a location and at a level where it was difficult for him to find people on his own level to bounce ideas off of. There, there weren't a lot of others who were where he was and that he could communicate with. He wound up having to communicate with lay people uh, most of them in this emerging counterculture, or a lot of them in this emerging counterculture. And so he had to express himself um, in ways that they could understand. And um, he's a very elegant writer. He's a, he's a very elegant communicator. Uh, and his, his writings are, they're not, often immediately understandable. You, you know, a lot of times you got to read them two or three times, but um, they're really good and they really communicate. Yeah, because you made the earlier connection to Deleuze and Guattari, I think, I mean, that's what Deleuze would call a helpful abstraction, I think, right? Certain abstractions are good because it, and it kind of cuts away this instrumental reasoning. And I think, so we have now with us, John, who's joined us, um, who's also part of our team. Um, John, be there, well, 
Um, because John has also, I think, in his recent work, looked at this um, connection between, I think, Guthari and Bateson. And I think in his RSD, I don't know if you've come across that paper, uh, Madalena. Mm, I don't I don't think so, but I'd love to. Yeah. Um, I, I'd love to connect with your research. I, I'm absolutely fascinating, <laughs> fascinated by it. Um, yeah, so you know, because something like, yeah. yeah, but, oh, not set up to talk. Okay, so I think, I mean, one opportunity is also we are going to have another discussion on the topic at the RCA, and that will be open to public. And okay is that you can also join and uh, we can kind of carry on the discussions and i think I mean, i'd love to just to answer like some of the the questions you had about you know this Bateson being a an important figure in Dada's and Gatari. i think yes and he appears in different ways there's something about Dada's right when he writes this kind of referencing he doesn't do it he does it in a kind of french way which is, I think, also his kind of register of writing. But um, so th things like Thousand Plateaus, the plateau idea, right? The idea of, you know, never reaching the climax of things. And then even capitalism and schizophrenia in a certain sense, schizogenesis, I think all these concepts really figure into their work. So I think there's, there could be a long discussion that we could have around that. So perhaps um, you join us. I would. I would love to join this journey because we're um, actually trying to run a little bit of an experiment um, <laughs> with, uh, I live in the south of Portugal in the Algarve and we are in a small village and we're hoping to actually sort of do a little bit of, uh, I guess you would call it exaptation in terms of evolutionary biology of hospitality infrastructures, you know, tourism um, into hosting warm data. Right. Uh, so that, you know, um, going along with the idea that, you know, school in, in, in its origin is skole, which in Greek means leisure, that maybe leisure and warm data <laughs> could <laughs> be hosted together. So uh, um, I'm I'm very interested in bringing other perspectives outside of this particular community to others who are exploring in the same field. So um, very excited about that. Thanks, Madeline. Uh, and we have Anthony. Um, he has put his email on the chat here. So if any of you would like to write to him or if you have questions, perhaps that would be another way to contact him. But do we have any more questions? I mean, we have time for one more question or comment. Um, yes, Simon, please. Well, I can't believe I'm uh, about to dive in here because it's the uh, most reckless thing I could say at a time that I'm trying to avoid saying anything reckless. But it's uh but I just wanted to thank uh Anthony for the summary. Really, really good. And sort of brought a lot of this stuff alive again. And I'm sure I'm not the only person for whom the conversation is actually resonating again, not just sort of like in environmental ecology, but political ecology. When you were saying about picking a side and uh, Romans and Palestine, the Pal Palestine, and so on. 
And what I'm finding now is in my role at a university, the sort of chilling effect and feeling unable to address uh, ongoing political events in the Middle East, Israel and Palestine. And the way that I think I find myself um, more than ever, I can't say I can't believe I'm saying this out loud because I'm trying to sort of avoid, which is itself its own problem, right? I'm trying to avoid discussion. But the way I find myself uh, more than ever, I f uh, thinking in sort of Batesonian terms of um, what um, that one find that I find myself sort of like backing up, backing up, backing up, backing up. And on the one hand, there's the immediate urgency of the suffering, like you, the comparison that we were making that you were making uh, around the dialectics of liberation conference in 67, you know, the, oh, the luxury of being a step back and um, reflect upon the long and tragic history of um, the Middle East and pogrom and whereas, of course, people are immediately dying and suffering on the ground. And I just find myself um, sort of almost unable to, navigate that space right now anyhow just wanted to register that in some way well i'm also seeing uh a message from john goodman he says i wanted to ask about the boldness of the palestinian opening in 67 mm. uh, you know the, the, this congress is held in the pretty much immediate aftermath of the six-day war um the consequences of which are still, you know, I mean, very much in our world in the present moment. Um, was how how bold was that? It's hard for me to know um, where people were uh, in that climate um, that didn't have the internet like we have today. Um, how many people were immediately connecting to that uh, six-day war. It didn't come up in the questions afterwards uh, for, uh, for Bateson. Um, I can say that. Um, but he is, you know, putting his finger on a very complicated situation in terms of how people who identifies being on the left are going to place themselves. A lot of people in the anti-war movement, of course, uh, you know, are American um, uh, Jews. And it puts them in an uncomfortable situation. Uh, the people who Stokely Carmichael, the black nationalists, who Stokely Carmichael was um, uh, interacting with and, and um, making connections with, identify with the Palestinians um, at that time in 67. And so groups that had been together in the civil rights movement, that had been together in uh, the anti-war movement, are a lot of tension is being put on those relationships at that moment. And yeah, uh, 
this is the way Beethoven begins that speech. Romans and the Palestinians. Madalena, I just wanted to say, I've seen you in warm data spaces and in Bateson Institute spaces before, and I've heard you speak out, and it's good to see you here again. I thought I had, but I wasn't sure. <laughs> so I didn't want to presume. But yeah, I mean, I think it's, this is so important because I'm going to be sound a little polemic, but part of the digging into Gregory is that he's not my father. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I can't relate the way Nora makes the bridge, you know, and, and so I started to have to do my own sort of journey to meet, you know, Gregory um, and, and understand better why I was resonating with this work, you know, because um, it really did, and this is why I asked you about, you know, whether you yourself felt a transformation in perception because perception is action. And I think that's part of the work we're trying to learn with Beethoven, you know, and so that's why I was curious, but thank you for having noticed. <laughs> well, this may be interesting to the group at large because I, I do think that um, Nora Bateson Bateson Institute is moving Gregory Bateson's thought forward on a theory of action, which he would talk about but didn't get to in his life. Um, and I think that's what Norris and her group are, are trying to do. And so, you know, if the question is how to apply Bateson's thought to things like design and architecture, that's what uh, this group is working on, in a sense, and working on a theory of action. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Um, and I mean, it's a challenge for us as well. I mean, for me personally, I think the starting point is, I mean, I'm also kind of partly trained as a historian, but I choose to, when it comes to Bateson's work, I feel like I don't ask the question, who is Bateson, but rather, you know, what does Bateson do? And do in the sense, you know, how does he also enable me to think? So it's just the kind of process question that's always helped me deal with his work. And I feel like, you know, who is Bateson question doesn't really, um, doesn't really engender that kind of work. So, and for me, it's always been a very helpful part is the kind of, not the content per se, but how he always kind of brings form and content together in his discussions, in his work as a topic. And that that's also been particularly inspirational, I would say. Um, but I think we're kind of coming towards the end of, I think, our discussion. Um, time period. Thank you so much for that um, amazing um, discussion. Anthony, it was great to have you. It was also great to read the book. And for those of you who might not have read it already. <laughs> and uh, so we are having our, we're having like our group event is happening um, on November 8th. This is at the RCA. And um, there'll be a kind of 
opportunity also to join online. And so on the introductory day, there'll be a le lecture by John Goodman, um, who will kind of also do like a general introduction to Bateson and the double bind. And you will see all of us there and, you know, also some of the work that we are doing. So it'd be nice if some of you are interested, you can join us. Um, so again, going back to Anthony, thank you so much. And we hope that we will see you um, again as we kind of go along this journey for another, we have uh, one more year and a couple more months to go. So <laughs> hope to yeah see you again sometime. You're welcome. And thank you again for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah. Uh, thanks so much. Then good night. Uh, I think it's night time for most of you. <laughs> good night. Thanks. Hi. Hi. Great meeting you. Uh, Domini. Great. Um, I will also be in touch um, with a form from you know, to for your honorarium. And there's a just there's a always an issue when people sign in that. So I will just let you know where you need to sign. And if it doesn't work, we will do it manually. But anyway, I will be in touch. It was great. It's actually yeah. the explanation of the book and you know some of the things, the events. Yeah, I was ready really wonderful i really felt like i was in the roundhouse when you were talking and i've sort of read all that material but i've never really felt like i was there before so thank you so much for it good to hear thank you all right bye-bye you too bye. do you want to stop recording Hold on.